Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Abstract Podcast. I'm Colin. I'm with Javen down here in the bowels of TFC in the recording studio. We are recording episode three of season three of the Abstract Podcast. Thanks for giving us a listen. My wife's name is Alicia Lee Ming Bear. She's a beautiful person who says I never recognize her on the show. This one's for you, girl. So, Javen, what are we going to talk about today? All right. Today, we're going to use the same format as the last podcast. We're going to talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, more specifically, her passing and what that means for the country. We're going to talk about a question from a listener regarding, um, how would you say it? Uh, Theological triage. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but it's way more fun than that. Yeah. And then we're also going to talk more about homosexuality. Because yours truly has a presentation due in about an hour that uh, he should probably run over before, you know, he gives it. So that'll be a great way to talk about that a little bit. Be good. Uh, So let's let's dive right in. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Ginsburg, the notorious RBG, uh, passes away Friday night at, she was in her 80s. I feel like you're really, you've arrived once you get like a a three initial name. People just like recognize you by that. Yeah. yeah, MLK, RGB, yeah. RG three. What is that even? Yeah, well, there goes <laughs> there goes that theory. <laughs> uh, no, but okay. So, so David, I thought we could introduce this thinking of it as when our oh crap moments came about the coming election. I think a lot of people have had moments when all of a sudden they go, oh crap. Yeah, <laughs> there's some. For yeah. me, it was more once I started digging in to this potential, not necessarily likely, but potential um, finish with the mail-in balloting, the popular Mm, vote in the Electoral mm -hmm. College, where um, you could see an early Trump lead and then all the mail-in votes come in and you could see it, then a Biden. Really escalating. Yeah, Yeah. starting to dig into that. That was my oh crap moment. Um, And so when I saw that uh, Ginsburg had died, that was... You reevaluated and this became your... Well, it was more just like, oh, crap, square. That was, it's, that's when I went, this is getting, this is trouble. It was kind of felt like kind of the, the, the sucker punch. Yeah. Um, when mean, you're already trying to get up from the sure. floor. It's 2020 has been just a perfect storm of mm-hmm. a lot of ways. I mean, if you would have tried to describe this two years ago to someone as this is what's going to happen, like all these events are going to coincide it would have sounded crazy, and actually it still does sound pretty crazy. So um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies, and so that opens up a Supreme Court justice position mm-hmm. because now we have eight justices instead of nine, correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, just talk about it. Oh, man. Um, so there's a lot of different because because the reactions have been, have been very partisan, um, kind of split down your partisan lines mm-hmm. per usual 2020 um, and before. But the the thing that's really interesting about it is it's essentially a complete reversal of a situation we had in 2016 with Obama yeah. and as president. Yeah, you're right. That is what makes this, I think, really right. interesting and worth talking about is because uh, what, I forget what year that would have been, but it was Obama's mm-hmm. second term in office, his last year 16, in office. Yeah. And if I remember right, it was nine months before he mm-hmm. was going to leave office. Yes. 
a justice passed away, and, and so the seat became open. Yeah, and the only thing different about that situation is the 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 presidential uh, party that was Democratic, and the Senate was Republican. This is yeah. President Republican, Senate Republican. Yeah, and I think there's Republican. a word for that, but I can't remember what I it is. Know. But yeah. Which is very interesting, and so, but what, there's, there's virtually no difference between the two. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the scenario is very similar, except right now we have three months until and voting has already begun, which makes it interesting as well. On the new justice confirmation? No, on, on the presidential election. Oh, the presidential election. Right, voting. we're already starting. Yeah. Early votes are already coming in. So yeah, and I think this speaks somewhat to the power of media. Um, we live in a media saturated world because. You know, politicians say things all the time that you don't remember. But then because of news media and video and things like that, it is brought back before our eyes. And I was just, I was really I was shocked when I seen the video of Lindsey Graham mm-hmm. just compelling the audience he was speaking to that back when Obama was president, this right. justice cannot be confirmed. And he went so far as to say, if this situation should happen again. You can use my words against me. This is the procedure that should be followed. That's the end of the conversation. And and then I think, you know, now, like, unfortunately for Lindsey Graham and a lot of people, yeah, this is exactly the situation which has mm-hmm. transpired. I mean, he predicted it without trying to. And, you know, now— And, and not he, only him. Like, it's— Yeah, a lot of people. Right. And he just shamelessly takes the exact opposite position. And now I don't want to just— well, I do want to pick on Lindsey Graham because I think it's really shameful what he's doing, but he's not alone in his shame. <laughs> right. Let me read you a couple quotes. Uh, so this, this Lindsey Graham quote, uh, he says, if an opening comes in the last year, this was when, when the whole debacle with, with Obama um, at the end of Obama's term, but he said, if an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process has started, we'll wait to the next election. I mean explicitly right there. He yeah. even teases out the possible scenario, and yeah. it's exactly that. And then um, Ted Cruz, it has been 80 years since a Supreme Court vacancy was nominated and confirmed in an election year. There is a long tradition that you don't do this in an election year. Marco Rubio, I don't think we should be moving on a nominee in the last year of this president's term. I would say that if it was a Republican president. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's it's crystal clear what they meant but in now, 2016 let's also talk about like biden was the vice president when this was going on mm-hmm. now i'll be honest i haven't really had time to look into this but i'm pretty certain biden would have been on the let's go ahead and confirm train yeah so here's um uh, a democratic senator in those same like at the end of obama's term christopher murphy um, he had released a statement that said the president fulfilled his constitutional obligation by appointing it during the election right. year. Now the Senate must fulfill ours. If Senate Republicans refuse to consider the president's <laughs> nominee, they will be willingly violating the spirit of that sworn oath. Um, yeah, and I mean, that's exactly— Chuck Schumer said the same thing. Yeah, yeah. so Democrats were saying that when it was their turn at the mm-hmm. plate, and now Republicans are saying it when it's when it's their turn at the plate. So, I mean, I don't think anyone really gets to claim the moral high ground, but— when I see the senator, one of the senators from my state, say something so blatantly, predict a situation that could come true, swear to the people that if it does happen, mm-hmm. this is how I will act, and then with no regard for that promise, take the charge on leading in the complete opposite direction, I can say I won't be voting for Lindsey Graham. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I, I won't. Right. And, you know, I don't know if the situation is better anywhere else, but... 
It's like, that's my own senator, and that just sucks. Yeah. And I think, too, um, the effects that this has on your, your average voter, as far as, like, you're just reading these headlines. Like, there's sometimes that, like, I wouldn't even call this hypocrisy. Like, this is straight-up deceit. Like, yeah. you said you're going to do this, and you're not doing it. Yeah. You deceived me. But then the sad reality is that it's not contained. <laughs> right. Like, this is how everyone is operating at this point. Now, right. I don't know if that article says, we could also mention what article you're reading, but mm-hmm. um, uh, weren't, aren't there some who have refused to vote on principle? There have been. I don't have their names, and I think there was only maybe four of okay. that. Um, but it, it did make waves because um, we've talked about Mitt Romney before on the show, but he, he came out in a statement supporting, um, which it should be said, like there is no, from from all I understand of the legal process, there is no constitutional rule for how this goes. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's a matter of principle and not a matter of law. Like legally, there could be a confirmation hearing and we could have a new justice very soon before the election. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be constitutionally acceptable. We could delay it until what it looks like now Biden becomes president and he nominates someone new and, and that's the appointed chair. And that would equally be Yeah, legal. so I mean... So it's not a, it's I'm not, not an expert in these things. I don't think it's necessarily true that Trump is out of bounds in appointing a new justice right. and trying to get that confirmed. I really don't. I just the problem I have is when when people's word no longer means anything. Like it literally means I'll do this mm-hmm. and then I won't do it and it doesn't matter. <laughs> right, and that's where it becomes a matter of of principle. It's the age old question of I can do this, but should I do this? Yeah, and and I think we would all like to see more from our elected officials then it for I mean it, it is a complete power grab like the 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 amount of gymnastics the only way I can appreciate people like Lindsey Graham or those people making the argument that we should put a justice in now is when they kind of just admit it and say well it's just politics we got to go with it <laughs> right um, that's what we're here for then it's like okay well at least you didn't try to say that like because I've heard some at least trying you didn't to claim decency right because I've heard some try to like distinguish the difference between the yeah. two there's not yeah it's not um, it's actually worse it's in fact, actually less time right and, and yeah, yeah. And, and the fact that voting's already stopped or started um so yeah, so how's it, how I mean, how important is control of the Senate right now? Like you know, I mean that's right. really important. Which I was listening, kind of getting into the bowels of the politics of it yesterday a little bit, which could be interesting, is because there's potential because of different Senate seats opening up that are Republican. Like if he would, if it carries on to even beginning of December, he could potentially lose some of those spots because they're in swing state votes right now where there could be a Democratic vote then in the Senate. So um, which, so if he wants it confirmed, it about has to go soon. So I want to put to you a question that was actually your question. Like, you actually came up with this, and I thought it was a really good idea, and so I want to mm-hmm. hear what you have to say with it. But there's this whole, there's this whole I think, kind of electorate, um, I don't know, this whole group of people who claims that it really doesn't matter what Trump does mm-hmm. except for abortion. Like, I'm a single voter issue. Because of unborn lives, I have to vote for the president who will best, you know, give me the possibility that unborn babies will be protected, mm-hmm. right? And so what happens to those voters if Trump gets this justice nomination? Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know a lot about the justice nomination, but she is Catholic. So <laughs> that speaks well for One the of unborn. Them is, yeah. 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 So if if you get the justice that you want, from Trump while he's still in office, mm-hmm. does that negate your reasons for voting for Trump in the next election? Right. Um, 
I would actually defer to what you answered for that. I don't think it's going to matter because I don't know that it's going to be a huge care. But I think if you're if you are a more thoughtful voter, but are a single issue voter, um, like it seems to me that would potentially make a difference because there are the voters. There is a sect of voters. I don't have the data on how potentially big or small they are, but who say, yes, Trump needs he is unfit for office, (laughs) except that he has. The Supreme Court nominee. He flies the right flag, right? He flies the right flag, and he's going to get justices, and this is a life issue, so therefore we need those justices in there. But if Trump does nominate—so say say the confirmation hearings go through quickly, um, and probably Amy Comey Barrett becomes the new justice, um, and you still can— have a choice about who you vote for president. Does that change any of those people who are like, yeah, yeah. I don't like Trump, but I don't think it does. And no, I, don't I don't think, think it, it does I, at all. Because for one, on one level, it's probably because it does, just doesn't make that many waves um, if you're voting that way. Uh, but for two, there's a good chance that Clarence Thomas's seat becomes available in the next four years. And so you have a vested interest. If yeah, there is so the a, argument never ends, right? Right, because, well, there could be another seat, and then we could have even a larger majority. Yeah, I, um, I read something. It was yesterday the day before, which I thought was really interesting. I had never realized was that Republican presidents have appointed, it's over twice as many justices mm-hmm. as Democrats in the last long time. Yeah. It's like, I want to say 11 to 4, but mm-hmm. I could be a little off I think on you're that. right, though. Yeah, so I, I didn't really realize that. Um yeah. But yeah, that's... Oh, okay. I know what I wanted to ask. Yeah. Also, there's some really interesting research that Sky Jatani is really promoting and the Holy Post podcast investigates, which is that who's in office has no bearing on abortion. Mm. Yeah. And so, I don't know. We don't have to get into that. But yeah. I think that's really interesting that we seem to take it for granted that if there's a Republican president in office, there's mm-hmm. going to be less abortion. Or even since Roe versus Wade, there's way more abortion. And that's actually not what the numbers are showing. Yeah. So, like, now I think the number is 13.7 abortions per 1,000 uh, conceptions is, is the data, which is lower than, than Roe v. Wade. And, yeah. in fact, the, the point in the, the decline—when abortion declined the most in recent history was under the Obama administration. Yeah, and so Obviously, the, of no credit of Obama. But, no, not because of what Obama stood for or whatever, but it is interesting mm-hmm. just to, to look at what actually affects— the numbers yeah. of unborn babies being killed, and it doesn't really seem to relate. Cor- like, there's no correlation to presidency. It doesn't seem that way. It doesn't no. seem that way. No, and and the amount of um, justices that there's only one justice right now on the court that would that would strike down that would strike down Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Of even of the conservative, I, I think Clarence Thomas is the only one who has cited that in in uh, dissents in past opinions. Yeah. So it's like. The reality of Roe v. Wade being overturned is very small, and I think an important point, though, is like even if Roe v. Wade does get overturned, then it is reverted back to states' rights. Um, yeah, and, and I've I've heard pretty compelling arguments that mm-hmm. if like true care for this issue, people realize that overturning Roe v. Wade probably isn't the way forward. Right. The best case scenario would be an amendment. Yeah. And so, like, my controversial take is if you really care about abortion, you care about it not being used as it is being used now, which is a election power grab. Yeah, it's a baseball bat you hit people over the head with. Yeah. yeah. And and, and to, for politicians to be able to utilize that to, to mobilize voters, and it makes you feel better about abortion without actually 
helping with that problem yeah. there. So, so I think that's if you really care about abortion, I think you really need to take a hard look at how the trends and, and the, the the research into that. Yeah. Man, the Supreme Court justices, I'm so fascinated with just just that mm-hmm. environment. Like, and it's interesting because actually recently I went and I read. I read like a court decision. And so like you can mm. read their voices in the writing, kind of get a bit of a feel for their personality, but it's like these are never people you see on the news talking. Right. It would be so interesting to hear what they had to say about, you know, all the things that are going on. I just I get the sense that we really don't have a good handle mm-hmm. on what really is even the the main points. What is even mattering? Like I feel like they could speak so well into that, but Probably a lot of people could. Yeah. We should move on. We have a few more things to get to. Um, it is 1022. The second thing we wanted to bring to bear was we really appreciated uh, one of our listeners, Alvin Smooker. We um, had our first listener feedback. That's exciting. <laughs> not the first. Not the first, but the first question Yeah, Alvin, so that, Alvin threw us some really good questions. And the one that I wanted to talk about was, excuse me, he said, I encountered this idea of first order, second order, and third order biblical doctrines. What does this mean? How is it useful? Um, Is it embraced by Christians across the spectrum? And he also added that it seems in some, like, super conservative circles, or I shouldn't say circles, but, um, and I don't mean conservative um, politically, I mean conservative, like, theologically. Theologically. All doctrine is first order doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so... I mean, we can talk a little bit about what this means, but the basic idea is that first order doctrine would be things like, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, right? Like Mm -hmm. these creedal type things that like, these are the foundations of our faith that if you challenge, if you don't, if you don't hold these things and you really can't be a part of the church, then you have your second order doctrine and third order doctrine, Mm -hmm. which becomes kind of less and less crucial that you agree with. So it's something that's third order. In theory, you could have people who are kind of across the spectrum in the church who wouldn't have to kill each other Mm -hmm. if they disagreed on these things. So, yeah, let's talk about this idea. And then I also want to read a bit from an article. Yes. Um, Okay. So really, I mean, the question comes down to a lot um, is is finding the right hills to die on, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I wanted you... You, um, well, you're pulling the article up there, but you said you had read something recently, and I came across a book I might talk about a little bit later that came out this past summer that might be helpful in this conversation as well. Um, but I think if, if we would just start at a very basic level, like I think some of it has to do with how we approach doctrine mm-hmm. um, and what we see doctrines function as in, in the Christian faith. Um, so for me, I'm going to name drop a really controversial figure. <laughs> um, but Rob Bell has a book, um, Velvet Elvis. Oh, um, yeah. That, that I just read an excerpt from uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Oh, I took that class too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that was really good. Uh, but anyway, so what, regardless of how you feel about Rob Bell, just take this point for what it is. Um, but he, he creates this analogy of two different ways of approaching doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the analogy of a brick wall and a trampoline. Yeah. And those ways I thought really helpful. So his his argument that is that if you approach doctrine as a brick wall, the wall is what your main focus is on. And so like if you take out a brick or two from that wall, your wall collapses. Yeah. And, and so it's like sorry, I don't mean to butt in, but no, it's good. like each thing is rigid mm-hmm. and it's um it's its own section. Right. But the wall is equally dependent on all parts. So if you break one of them things out, 
like it's right. going to crumble. And the bricks are all the same size. You yeah. Know? And mm-hmm. that's an important point. So he says that's one way of approaching it. And he pointed, he made the argument for a different way of approaching it, was approaching it more like a trampoline, which is doctrine is there to be the spring to propel us into knowing um, a a God that is infinite and that every attempt at us creating doctrine or creating words to describe him are ways that we are trying to put him in a category that we can make somewhat sense of. So we're always diminishing him with that. And so good doctrine is meant to not create that um, that rigidness, mm-hmm. but instead created to propel you into a, a deeper knowledge of who God is. Yeah, um, and so, so and that's really helpful, I think. But I obviously it breaks down eventually because you still got to have your springs for your trampoline, you know, and so then you get kind of into... But the thing I like about it is that you're not... And that we'll probably talk about later, but but um, not all bricks are the same size, which we'll get to later. But go ahead and talk about what you were reading some. I like that analogy because the um, the springs can move, <laughs> mm-hmm. and yeah, they can flex. And if, if we're honest, I mean, we don't want to see ourselves as standing firm no matter what happens. And we have this view that somehow, like, we're separate from culture, right. that culture is made up of people. And so if we stand strong, we influence culture. Like, that's just really not a good way of understanding it. So we have to understand that we do move and we shift, and that's mm-hmm. okay. And I think that analogy gets to that. So this article, uh, I feel bad. I just have a screenshot. But it was something a professor assigned us to read, so I don't know who wrote it. But it, it kind of it outlines these three different um, kind of levels of teaching. So let's see what he says. A threefold model to account for um, biblical teaching. So the first is direct teaching, teaching that best represents what the original author intended the original audience to understand from the text. So that's direct teaching. Then you mm-hmm. have implied teaching, teaching that seems reasonably clear by examining how texts speak. For example, Paul speaking to Philemon about Onesimus while never directly stating a view on manumission, slavery, I guess, implies a softer approach to an indentured servant. Creative constructs are the third tier theologically constructed views that interpret that interpreters argue best represent the totality of the Bible. And so in at least my own experience, this direct teaching thing, like we're all pretty much on the same page when it comes to these things. Well, I probably shouldn't make that assumption, but, (laughs) you know, more or less. But it's down here in these creative constructs, these third level of doctrine Mm -hmm. that we like, these are the weeds. And unfortunately, I think these are the hills that we tend to live and die on. Yeah. And um, if we had a view of theology more as a spring than a brick, <laughs> perhaps right. we wouldn't have to. Right. Yeah. And then, and then I think also relevant is the debate. I mean, you have to have the debate about, well, what's first, second, and third level right. doctrine? Like, is homosexual marriage in the church second, third, or first level? You right. know, and, and then, you know, you have to bring your views to bear on that, but. Right. Yeah. Um, Gavin Orland wrote a book over the summer that uh, he, he titled it Theological Triage, which triage is like a, a medical word for like the process you go through for helping someone, I guess. Yeah, I heard that in COVID terms. Oh, They're really? triaging and it's not good oh, because oh. you have to decide who gets care and who doesn't. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but he was saying like he and he breaks it down kind of similarly. Um, but it was interesting hearing like because there's some hermeneutics mixed in with yours about how we understand like author intention and mm-hmm. how that would have been heard, um, which creates a more complex issue to, <laughs> to it. Um, but 
Ortland argues that you just identify them as primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrines. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says, like, for primary doctrines, like, he, he kind of has these lines of demarcation for each one. So he says, um, for primary doctrines, he would classify them based on if they mark a fault line between the gospel and another ideology, religion, or worldview. Um, so, like, I, he, he says, like, for him, an example would be, like, the virgin birth. Like, that is a distinctly Christian thing that separates it from yeah. any other worldview. Yeah, you can't hold to a non-virgin ver- birth and, and, and claim orthodox, to be a Christian right. or an, an Orthodox Christian. Yeah. Pretty much. Right. Yeah. And that could be um, like the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, but here's my question with that, Javen. So I was just reading an article or a reading and this professor was sitting down with um, some of his seminary students and they were kind of asking him the same kind of question. Like, hey, what is like the minimal... Mm-hmm. belief requirements for someone to be a Christian. And he rep, or he he didn't like the question for a while because, <laughs> and he didn't answer it for a long time because he said that those were not the questions that the first hearers of this were asking. Right. Um, it was a complete surrender of allegiance and of your totality of right. being and all this. Anyway, right. but finally they, they said, what would be like, what about the Trinity? Like, if you don't believe the Trinity, like, could you call yourself a Christian? So he just started asking them questions. Um, about the Trinity and about the Trinity's function in their lives. And they had, the only answer they kept coming back to is that, well, you need to believe it to be a Christian. But it made, they mm. didn't really know even what it was or how that would make a difference for them a Christian or even a slight description um, of what the Trinity is. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> like that was for me, I started thinking, I was like, well, what does that mean? Like, do you have to like just mentally adhere to this doctrine, even though it doesn't, change you it's not transformative at all in fact you probably which i mean you can't understand the trinity per se um but there are ways of incorporating it into your being um so i don't know that was my question for you like how does that tension work then when you say this doctrine is primary which i would argue the trinity is a primary doctrine but it makes absolutely no difference to you yeah so if there's one thing that i took took away from intro to theology it is that you <laughs> without a doubt hold heretical views about the trinity <laughs> if you have ever opened yeah. your mouth and said father son and holy spirit like i have taught to it. actually yeah. articulate the orthodox view of the trinity takes like a phd like it is very difficult it's to try to talk about these things because i mean this is a very central part of our faith but very hard to get a grasp on and mm. i mean i don't think anyone necessarily has a grasp on it but like all the ways that you can be a heretic when talking about the trinity is it's insane and like i am there's no right there's no way i can outline the right orthodox view but so i don't know i mean if you're asking me like are you asking me what's baseline to being a christian because it's it's not an intellectual understanding of the trinity right that was my thing is like so Essentially, that argument would boil down to, so what you're saying is the minimal belief requirements is this form of mental assent that changes you absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, no we way. know that that's not, that's not true. Right. Um, I don't really have a good answer, but I do know I have over the past couple of years really come to appreciate the creeds. Mm-hmm. And um, my favorite articulation of this is Rich Mullen's song, yep. Creed. And, like, whenever I'm trying to think about what the creed says, I just go through the song. Right. <laughs> like, exactly. I believe in God the Father— Mm. maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, um, crucified and buried on the third day. He rose again, 
resurrection. To raise the quick and the dead and the sons of man. (laughs) (laughs) But like Uh, those things are what you have to believe, at least intellectually, to be a Christian. Yeah. And like for me, yeah, I'm I'm fairly creedal and and I do think it's important. There's, you know, in First Corinthians fifteen three. Paul goes, and this is what I've transmitted to you, and this is of first importance. Yeah. And then he goes and just basically lays out what the gospel is. Um, but again, that's kind of complex, too, because the gospel can yeah. be somewhat hard to completely define. Like that, you define the, the gospel different if you're Reformed or if you're not Reformed a little bit. So, I'll, yeah, I think there's just there's a lot of different ways of getting at this. But another way is, you know, Christ said, love God and love your neighbor as mm-hmm. yourself. And like he said— all the law and all the prophets and everything that's ever been written up to this point <clears throat> is summarized in those two things. And so if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, you have to love God and you have to love other people. So, right. I and mean, that's, that's what, yeah, it's this idea of like, there is a, a, a truer reality than that of intellectual descent. Mm-hmm. It's, it's of actually becoming love as the Trinity is love in itself. Yeah. And maybe you would think about this as, you know, there's different ways, like, I don't know why I always use the analogy of plumbing, but there would be someone who holds a PhD in plumbing who understands the theory, right? Who understands Mm -hmm. the material, the components, everything. And then there's like the guy, it's raining outside right now, who shows up and fixes your pipes in the rain. Right. Like which one is a plumber? Well, (laughs) yeah, they definitely both are. Yeah. You know, so you don't have to have this intellectual ability, but I think that it also is a part of it. Right. Right. Um, One thing... I wonder if you've ever heard this before, but, you know, the Proverbs have always been kind of ambiguous to me. Like, Mm -hmm. it just seems like they're disjointed. And I think when you study them, you realize that there's a lot more to them than you realize. But I've heard that, um, I think it's Bruce Waltke. He's Mm -hmm. a theologian, scholar. But he, he summarizes the meaning of the Proverbs as the righteous man is the one who will disadvantage himself for the advantage of the community. Yeah. Yeah. The foolish man is the one who will disadvantage the community for the uplifting of himself. And I've really, I've been thinking about that lately. Like, that is a really interesting dichotomy. I don't think it works too well in capitalism and the American <laughs> dream. But the righteous person is the one who is willing to lay down his life for the good of the people around him. Mm-hmm. The foolish man is the one who would take from everyone around him to build himself up. Right. Right. Yeah, and that comes into a lot of... Um, how doctrine can be approached sometimes it is it, it can be like doctrine becomes bully tactics very fast in in especially i would say in more well actually i wouldn't necessarily say in conservative theological circles because you see it on on the flip side too um but i think yeah i think just a general triage of understanding that that there are varying levels with which you approach your doctrine and and those can be hard conversations sometimes but yeah i'm i'm a fairly creedal person in that um but i don't think that answers all the questions yeah so learning so i guess just in summary i I do think it's important that you know as you grow up in the church i think it's important that you're taught hey these are the things these are the hills we will die on like we will not give up these things right hey these are the things that like we're pretty sure about but we probably wouldn't like kick you out if you didn't believe them Mm -hmm. and these are the things that this is where we've come out on but other faithful people have really come out on a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an articulation that is largely missing, right? at least from my own experience. But, right. I mean, I'm not blaming other people. It's probably my own fault for never looking into these things. But right. I yeah. think that is an important thing to remember. And then, you know, you might apply that everywhere. Like, okay, 
if you come to this church, it's actually okay if you're not a Democrat. It's actually right. okay if you're not a Republican. Like, that's actually not a first issue, right. but it actually is treated as a first issue sometimes. Right, right. And I think especially once you get past to, like, okay, these are the hills we die on. Like, for me, once you get past there, like, my approach is generally, um, like, like Paul and Acts after, I think it's Acts 15, like, after the Jerusalem Council, they're talking about what they decided. And he's mm-hmm. like, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit that this is the way forward. Yeah. And it's like, even there, like, this is the Jerusalem Council. This is deciding how Jews and Gentiles are going to relate to each other. He's like, this is what seemed good to the Holy Spirit in us as a community. And so this is the way we're going to move forward. Um, so anyway. I don't we, know. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know if we'll get to our last topic because this is something I think it's the appropriate time to talk about. And I really want to bring it up. Um, in... My theology class right now, which I'm about to go present in, I'm a little nervous about that if you haven't noticed. I just, <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I've, I've read, I've prepared, have a PowerPoint. I just don't enjoy these pressure situations too much. I would rather sit here and have a conversation. Um, it's brought up the point, as we look at homosexuality in the church, mm-hmm. well, really, just anywhere, there have been so many different views on this and one of the reasons is because scripture is interpreted differently as we go down through the ages mm-hmm. not only interpreted differently but actually written differently because i mean how many how many translations of the bible can you think of off the top of your head it's like a lot right so i wanted to pardon me while i page through yeah here it is so right here um this is megan defranza who's actually tfc alumni what who knew she's really? in the book yeah she's wow. on here that's yeah, pretty cool Shout out to her. So there are these three um, Greek words that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and then 1 Timothy 10. One is, I don't want to pronounce them, but it's she's pointing out how these words have been translated differently over time. Mm-hmm. So in the 1611 KJV, this word is translated effeminate. In 1952, it's translated sexual pervert. In 1982, it's translated homosexual. 1984, it's translated male prostitute. Again, male prostitute. Then we go back to effeminate. And in 2011, we translated men who have sex with men. So we go from effeminate to a prostitute to men who have sex with men. Similarly, this other word in 1 Timothy 10, back in 1611, is translated them that defile themselves with mankind. Sodomites, sodomites, perverts, sodomites, homosexuals, those practicing homosexuality. And this might not seem like a big deal but mm-hmm. I really think that it is a big deal because when you're you know after the reformation we basically take the text out of the hands of the church and we mm-hmm. give it to the people and we say you should be able to read this on your own you should be able to do your own interpretation you do what your bible tells you to do right mm-hmm. and we largely celebrate this and this is good and I, I think it is pretty good but it brings to bear the question what are people responsible for are you responsible to the year that your translated bible came out are you supposed to have views on homosexuality that reflect the text that you're given? Are you supposed to reflect views that is what your church believes, your mm-hmm. pastor believes? Like, I don't think it's it's legitimate to say you're responsible to the Bible when the Bible is saying different things depending on how it's translated. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. And so I brought this up to the professor, and he was like, this is why the Eastern Church laughs at the Protestants. He's like, because you guys just all translate it however you want to translate it. Mm-hmm. Within more Eastern traditions, 
like it's a much more communal reading right. and you read and understand as a community and then you belong to a certain way of interpreting. Right. And I think I'm really beginning to see the value of that. Yeah, because it does get complex because then you have to have, well, I mean, because one of the strengths and weaknesses of, of Western evangelicalism is the same thing. It's monolithic um, or it's not monolithic. Sorry. Which means like, so like the Catholic church is monolithic. Like they had a catechism, um, you know, and this is how, this is how they interpret, and this is how the interpretation carries them forward into their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have anything like that. You no. might have something like that if you're part of a um, denomination. Like a, yeah, but I mean, how many people go to a non-denominational church? Right. I do. Right. I don't know what that means, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's no, there's no um, guiding boundary marker. Yeah. And so then it creates this, um, it creates a, I don't know if you want to say a, transla- a transmission problem, because then you have your seminaries and your training, your biblical training that fall in line with these denominational categories. Mm -hmm. And then they have to try to translate uh, or transmit the things they are learning to their denominations, their denominations to the pastors, their pastors to their congregations. And it's just a whole messed up system Um, because then you could go, to the next church over that's a different denomination and you have a different trickle down effect. Yeah. So, and so can I just segue us in? This is, this I think is the best recent example of how this is playing out. We are going across America and we are burning down, pulling down, destroying statues of mm-hmm. people who we look at and we say, these people were wrong. Like they were racist. We celebrated them and we shouldn't have because they were evil people. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I sympathize with both sides of this argument right. because, yes, like, why why do we have these Confederate statues up when the thing that they were fighting for, we can pretty much say was evil, right? right. It, was, it was a way of life that oppressed a certain class of people, treated them as objects. So, yeah, we shouldn't have statues to those people. But at the same time, I mean, look back three generations. Mm-hmm. Like, look at what our own, like, three generations back, my ancestors were probably racist. And right. so it's this question of what are you responsible to? Are you responsible? I mean, like you say to scripture, mm-hmm. but even that is kind of hard to get a bearing on because our translations and understandings of scripture change. Are you responsible to the view of justice held by your time period? Mm-hmm. Are you responsible to something transcendent? And I think the argument we're making as a culture is at least in some ways you're responsible to something transcendent because if you didn't hold the right view on racism, mm-hmm. we're coming for your statue. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, this is a conversation that, like, it's just fascinating because, I mean, culture changes, understanding changes, what is right changes, and you can't say that it doesn't. I mean, I think it's just ignorant to to hope to claim that. Right, right. Oh, man. (laughs) So much. It is so much, and it is just hard to know then, like, it's hard to necessarily know how to engage in conversations because... A lot of this comes down to this kind of kind of epistemological discussion about how we're actually going to know mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And like that process is where there's such divergence um, that I don't know. We don't have time to get into all of that. I think but, one one helpful distinction that I have seen made um, in, in class by a professor is that, you know, when we talk about cultural studies, we talk about observing, you know, the movement from the modern to the postmodern to the mm-hmm. hypermodern or whatever it is that we currently find ourselves in. Like you can write it on the board and you can write God and then you just 
write a line and you write everything else. Like everything is shifting and moving and turning, but God does not. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, it's simple, but that's a really helpful way to understand it. Because you look at, you look at the way we interpret the Bible. You look at the articulation of his word. Mm -hmm. You look at cultural society, like norms. You look at everything and it, it moves and that's okay. But God does not move. And so maybe the spirit is what takes us from what we're moving around in Mm -hmm. toward what does not move. Yeah. But see, I think that's an important point that I don't think is always the way that this is approached and to kind of bring it full circle, like how you were talking at the beginning. Like when there's this idea that um, when we say engage the culture and we treat culture as this monolithic entity that we are separate from, that we can look into and then kind of decipher it and all that, like that completely nullifies the understanding that I am, I am actually a, a part of whatever mm-hmm. we define this culture as, and I am creating cultural artifacts for good or for bad yeah. that are going to contribute to this. And if I don't think that I'm going to carry whatever the cultural artifacts that I've consumed that have shaped me, if I don't think I'm going to project that on every part of my life, I think we're completely deceived. Yeah. One conversation that we definitely don't have time to have, but is really fascinating is, um, I guess, maybe I hope to study this more if I go on to get a master's degree, but like just the shift from the modern to the postmodern, it is, it is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it, it affects us so incredibly much. And I think, I think we're dealing with people who still hold modern understandings and some people who don't, and it just creates a lack of ability to even talk to each other. But right. when you have the birth of the modern, you have people like, um, I'm blanking on his name. He said, I think, therefore I am. Socrates. <laughs> it's not him. Um, um, I really know who it is. But anyway, it doesn't really matter. He, like th- their understanding in the modern age is that you are separate from culture. Like we are all individual people with our. Did you find it? Yeah. Yeah, it's Descartes. I just Descartes, remembered it. Yeah. yeah. We're separate from culture. We bring our essence. Like we can mm. be. We're essential. We bring our essence into culture. And then if you have like fifty people, culture is just one plus one plus one plus one until you get to fifty. That's not really how we should be understanding culture. Culture is as much us as we are it. And so you can't mm-hmm. remove yourself right. from culture. Like you are, it's, it goes both ways. Like which came first? They didn't. Chicken egg. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's fantastic. So thanks Alvin for sending in that, that question. Um, we really appreciate when people do that and uh, there's any more that people have send them in. We still have some more that hopefully we'll get to in later shows but we got to wind this down we do uh because you got a presentation to go do but thanks everybody for tuning in um it's been good and uh hopefully you enjoyed it and it was engaging and uh let us know what you think if you do want to go um wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us we would really appreciate that um but until next time have a good week peace